The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful that you have the whole world in your hands, including us in every circumstance that we face. And Lord, I admit that I know some of us have just heard about Bruce and don't know what's going on there and, and our minds are partially distracted. So I thank you that you have him, Virginia and their family, in your hands. And I pray that whatever is going on, as Kurt said, seems to be doing well, but whatever's going on there, Father, be present there in power to work out your good and perfect, gracious will in them and on them and through them to those around them. Give us a strong sense of your presence there, the fact that we can entrust them to you and know that they are loved dearly and deeply by you. Be with them there and be with us here, Lord, as we turn to the Scripture now. and we want to hear from you about your controlling power over our lives as we face tribulation. Lord, you've spoken here in your word in a letter written a long time ago, and I pray that you would make it live for us now and that you would speak to us in it today. Help us, we ask, Lord. Father, would you send your spirit here in our midst to to run through this room and address each individual here to awaken, to correct, to encourage, to maybe clear away sin if there are any any things that need to be dealt with in our lives, to, to prepare each one of us here to hear from you the message that you have for us this morning. May he do that, Lord, under your commission He have his way here. Spirit, would you make the scriptures live and point us to Christ and cause us to rest in him and trust him? Jesus, in trusting you, will you be near to us and communicate to us all of your goodness and grace? Cause us to revel in the fact that you have come and made a way for us to be joined to the Father again, to have communion with Him. Once alienated and now reconciled because of you, help us to appreciate that and to be thankful for it. Lord, have your way here with us. Make us your people. Speak. Give us grace to listen. For the good of us, your people, your church and for the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Spirit, God Almighty, our Savior. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We turn this morning to Revelation chapter 2 and to the letter written to the church in Smyrna. We're taking a few weeks now to look at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, and we're doing so 
with the idea that as we read these letters written to these seven churches, we realize that these seven churches are representative of churches all across the globe, all down through time, and so they're actually spoken to us as well. And we're reading them because we want to learn what God says to the churches, a common phrase in each one of those letters. We want to hear them and apply them and become a church more pleasing to him. So we started in chapter 1 by seeing some of the main themes of the whole book, particularly what's emphasized there is the sovereignty of God the Father and the sovereignty of God the Son. This is a very Trinitarian book. God the Father and God the Son are both there in chapter 1. And we see how God reigns over everything. He is in charge. And we then are to remember that, and as chapter 1, verse 9, encourage us to have patient endurance while we live here in a world that is at odds with Him. So we face a hostile world and the tribulation that we will meet in it. The trouble, the affliction. In particular, we saw at the very end of the chapter that Jesus was depicted for us with very vivid imagery to point out different aspects of who Jesus is as he interacts with us as our sovereign king. And then, from that, each piece of that imagery is then picked up and put into the various letters that follow. Last week, first piece in the letter to the church in Ephesus where he picked up the piece there and reminded them that he is the one that is in authority over the church. And he aims to shine out through the church into the world all around. But because he has authority over the church, he can command the church and has the right to turn off the lights and close up shop in any church as he chooses if it walks away from him. And so last week he exhorted them, he commended them first on on the fact that they tenaciously clung to the truth. That was good. But he sought to correct them on the fact that they've abandoned love. As we saw last week, that a church that's pleasing to Christ is one that perseveres in truth and also is marked by love. May that be us. That was Ephesus. And now we come to Smyrna. Smyrna is the only one of these seven churches that is still an existing living city today. It's now the city of Izmir which is a port city on the western coast of Turkey. It's a very large city. And there is, marvelously, there is a Christian church in Izmir today. Which is not, not to say that that church traces its roots all the way back to this particular church, a lot of times past. But it's, it's a marvelous thing to think about. In the country of Turkey, which is 99.9% Muslim, that there's a Christian church in this city, which, as we'll see, Satan does not like. He does not want there to be a church in that city. And the letter to Smyrna deals with that fact. This is a letter about living in the midst of tribulation, facing affliction and attack. And it's meant to be an encouragement about how to live and keep on living amidst such an environment. This is about an attack on a small church. This is one of the two smallest churches of these letters, one of the weakest churches, but maybe ironically, it's a weak church that has no weaknesses. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for anything here. He just seeks to encourage them, to kind of strengthen their arms, lift them up. And so he speaks the same message to us, and here I'm going to summarize it in this sentence. Here's my main point for this morning. Jesus speaks the church and urges it, remain faithful in the risen and resurrected, the risen and reigning Christ. Remain faithful in the risen and reigning Christ. 
all the way to death. And you will know life. Remain faithful in Christ all the way to the end. And you will know, K-N-O-W, you will know life. That's the point. We're working towards that this morning by making three observations. The first two are longer than the third one. But before I do that, let me read the passage. It's from Revelation 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2. So I have three observations, and the first one is this then. Christ is in control over all of our tribulations. Christ is in control over, He reigns over all of our tribulations. Verse 8 begins by setting up the command that begins each one of these letters. Write, thus says the Lord, remember that's kind of echoing the Old Testament Scriptures, thus says the Lord who introduces Himself here as the first and the last who died and came to life. That's from chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. A reference, obviously, to the cross and resurrection. Died and came to life. But notice, I am the first and the last. We looked at this before. It's essentially another way of saying how God the Father described Himself. And Jesus also used the same language. He's the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end, God the Father and God the Son both describe themselves this way, saying, I am the beginning, I am the end. I am the first, I am the last. Between me on the bookends, I contain everything. I'm the frame within which the whole picture is painted. I'm, I'm the capital letter and the period within which the whole book is written. I hold everything. Everything. I contain it all. Everything exists in me. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one in control. That's what he's emphasizing. Even death that I have conquered. I was dead and I'm alive again. I control that too. Everything. So he introduces himself. And it's important to them. He says that to them in Smyrna because of what they're facing. They need to remember, Christ is the one who is in charge of, who is over me and everyone I meet and everyone I encounter and every circumstance that I face. It's between His two hands. He holds it all. Verse 9, He says, emphasizing it, in fact, I know your tribulation. Which is to say more than just I've been briefed about it and I've been informed. I, I know it. I'm familiar. I'm connected. I'm there with you in it. 
your tribulation. Same words we saw before, back in chapter 1. Your affliction, your hardship, your suffering, your trouble, which is part and parcel of the Christian life, as we saw, but it is particularly hard for them in Smyrna. The situation there was a difficult one. History records that Smyrna had a large and vocal Jewish population that was vehemently opposed to Christians. And using legal means, exploiting Roman laws, the Jews of the city instigated significant persecution against the people of God. Notice how I stated that. The Jews instigated persecution against the people of God. The people of God are the Christians. And he makes that doubly clear here in his language. They're they're instigating great persecution against them, which is slander, or the word actually in verse 9 there is blasphemy. Opposing the church and opposing God's work in it, they oppose God. Slandering Him, blaspheming Him as they slander His people. And it led to great poverty in the church as as businesses dried up, as jobs were lost, as possessions and homes were seized and destroyed. It often happens when the church is an underclass, it suffers materially, physically. It's all at the hands of those who claim to be Jews, but like Jesus said in John 8, and we'll look at that later, he clarifies, they are not of God, the Father, And they are not of Father Abraham, because obviously they are not of his belief system, nor of his behavior. And so their behavior and their belief shows they're not of God the Father, and they are not of Father Abraham, but are in fact of their father, Satan. Those are hard words in John 8. True words in John 8. True words here. Jesus says, I know all this, I see all of it. And I know that more is coming. Verse 10, you are about to suffer more as some of you are thrown into prison. And don't miss what that's saying. Back in that day, particularly under Roman law, prison was not the sentence. We think of prison as as a sentence, like you rob a bank and you are, are sentenced to 10 years in prison. That's not the case. Prison was a holding tank until trial or until execution. And if the, if the trial happened and the sentence was to be lashed a certain number of times, it would be carried out immediately. There's no need to wait for that. But you might be held in jail for perhaps, say, 10 days if an execution was in store because they might have to arrange the next games with the next wild beasts. That's what's going on here. Ten is probably not meant to be literal. It's probably an allusion to an Old Testament passage which is talking about persecution. But the point is, to put it in other words, I know that some of you are about to be sent to death row by the devil. That's what he's saying. And while on death row, you will have tribulation. So this is very serious. This is not a 10-day jail term. It's death row. 
It's the most serious of all kinds of tribulation. It's, it's more serious than anything we will ever know. It, it doesn't get more serious than facing the fact that you are about to be executed or a loved one in prison is about to be executed. Because remember, they're, they're all going to read this. The whole church is going to see it. Some of them are going to be in jail, some of them not. This, this is serious. And Jesus sees it and knows it's coming. And boy, he wishes he could stop it, but he can't because he's powerless. Uh-uh. That's not what's happening. He sees it. He knows it's coming. He knows more is coming. And he tells them something else which is even more challenging. He has intention in it. He has a purpose in it. He has decided that it will be on purpose to accomplish his purposes. Look at the phrase in the middle of the verse, the middle of verse 10. That you may be tested. Satan is about to send some of you to death row that you may be tested. By whom? Well, he could very much be alluding to the fact that Satan is going to try to tempt them to turn away from God. And that word test could be translated tempt. But the grammar points us in a different direction. He's not talking about Satan primarily. This gets a little technical, but try to follow this. We have a switch. If you read it, you can see it. There's a switch from an active verbal structure to a passive verbal structure right in the sentence. Satan throws into jail, that's active, that you may be tested, that's passive. There's a change there that should make us ask, tested by whom? You switched. Tested by whom? By whom? We could ask Job. Job, when Satan lays a heavy hand of persecution on you, hoping to tempt you away from God, Who's actually testing you, Job? And he would respond, God, who brought the whole thing up in the first place. Have you read the book of Job? God starts the book of Job. God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? God brought it up. God is up to something in Job's case and in Smyrna's case. Job would know that. Job would say to them, who's testing me? Ultimately, it's God. Except that Job wouldn't actually say it because Job never read the whole book of Job. He doesn't know what's going on back there. But Christ, in mercy, tells the church in Smyrna the whole picture. Tells us the whole picture. Tells them what's going on. That you may be tested. I'm the first and the last. I'm the ruler of everything, including this created adversary of yours, Satan, the devil, your enemy, and those that he uses. And absolutely everything that happens to you happens between my two hands. I'm in control of it. I'm in charge of it. I know what's going on. Everything that's come to you has come through my fingers by my decision for my purposes, which are good to you, child of God which are good to you, child of God. It's all come to you through me. Do you trust me? 
Let me test you to see. And to show. The testing shows something. Now, I'll come back in a moment to the purpose of the testing. But right here, we have to settle on this. We've got to be clear about this, that Christ is in control over all of our tribulations. Over all of our afflictions, over all of our hardships, even the terrible ones, like sitting on death row at the hands of an evil persecutor. Or having a loved one sitting there. Everything. He knows it all. He has a purpose in it all. Even above and beyond whatever evil purposes the actual agents who are doing it might have, God has something else going on. So Christian, have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Some of us here in this room have relatives, maybe here in this country, but I'm particularly thinking of in other countries, in foreign countries, have relatives who are at this moment in very dire straits, in trouble. You know it better than I do, but I know a little bit of it. Some of us here in this room have relatives in other countries in trouble. Persecuted in tribulation, even with their very lives in danger. Have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He has that. He's over it. He knows every single thing that's going on there a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand miles from here. He knows it. He has it. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow and the next day, even though we don't. He's in control over every tribulation you or a loved one will face, which of course does not mean it's going to go away. These folks are going to die. That's true. We don't know what will happen in any of our particular circumstances. He has it. He has it. Trust Him. And others of us, we're facing troubles of other sorts, and, and perhaps we might not call it, you might not call it tribulation exactly, you might just call it hardship or difficulty or trouble or trial or something, but whatever it is, it's painful and it's frightening and it's hard. And it's here. And if it's not here in your life right now, you know, wait a little bit, it'll come. It's part and parcel of life. Sickness, a financial trouble. He's in control of that. Brothers and sisters, he's in control of that. He has every single thing under his, under his widespread arms that are strong. And the first thing he's saying to you here is, I got it. I am the first and the last. I'm the first and the last. I got it. I got it, really. Including death. I got that too. I was dead. I'm alive again. I got it. Trust me. Whatever it is you're facing. But let me, I want to drop it down just a level, kind of dial the intensity back a little bit, because one of the difficulties that we face in the United States today is that when we talk about tribulation, we don't actually face 
right now, today, in this country, the kind of situation going on in Smyrna. And so it's hard to connect to it. So what I want to do is I want to dial down tribulation from death row, tribulation down from sickness and, and, and great danger down to something that if you're a 10 or a 12-year-old boy, you might identify as trouble. And I think as I talk about these things, if you're thinking just a little bit, they connect to all of us. You're done the same way. If you're a 10 or a 12-year-old boy, what is trouble in your life? Well, I don't know what's trouble in each individual 10-year-old, 12-year-old boy or girl's life is, but I can think about mine. I hated what I called, that's unfair and that's boring. That's unfair was really hard. I'm looking at a game that I'm playing and -and so-and-so gets to play more than I do. Or so-and-so gets picked and I didn't get picked. Or the referee, the umpire is blind. And I'm angry about that. I mean, if you've been a 10 or 12 year old boy and you're into athletics at all, you've known that. I didn't get picked. I feel bad about that. Or I did get picked and we got ripped off. You feel bad about that. You're frustrated. Now, obviously, that's a long way from death row in Smyrna. But we live there, maybe not on your basketball team, but maybe in your office. Or I get made fun of because my hair or my clothes or my glasses or my complexion isn't what it's supposed to be. And I feel humiliated. Or what I was really looking forward to, whether it be the game or the movie we were going to go to or the vacation we are going on to, it got rained out or canceled and here I am left crushed in my disappointment and bored out of my mind. Frustrated. Or my parents aren't doing what I think they should or really aren't doing what they should. I've been in both of those cases. My parents are divorced. I was old enough to know what was going on when that happened. And I I know for certain that some of you are right in that space right now. Your parents aren't doing what you think they should do or they're not doing what you know they should do. And it's tearing your family apart. Tribulation, trouble, also looks like that in our lives and varieties thereof. And over all of that, what the Spirit says to the church, says to you is, I've got that. I, I'm in control over it. I'm doing something in it. Nothing happened here accidentally. It didn't rain by coincidence. You don't have pimples by accident. I mean, they have, obviously there's some development things, but some kids have it worse than others. Why? Not by accident. God's doing something in that. 
Your parents aren't getting divorced just because something random went haywire in the universe. I'm over that. I'm in control of it. We have to look at everything that's happening, whether it be as 10, 12-year-old boys or, come on now, all that connects to all of us. We have to look at all of our lives and say, there either is a God who controls it or there isn't, and I had, I had better be really lucky or I'm in trouble. No, there is a God. In fact, there is a God who is over. He controls every hardship and every affliction you will face. He has it. Which is the first point that leads us immediately to the second observation. How are we supposed to respond to that? Then what are we supposed to do with it? If there is a God, and there is, who has and holds all of our affliction and all of our trouble and is sovereign over it, how do we respond to that? This is the second observation then. Do not fear, but remain faithful to Christ. Do not fear, but remain faithful to Christ. Those are the two commands of this passage. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's coming. Do not fear. Which is all over the Bible. Do not fear. Maybe it's the most common command of the Bible. I have no idea if that's true, but it's everywhere. And of course, it does not mean some command about the emotion of fear. Do not have the emotion of fear. It's commanding us to not be controlled by the emotion of fear. The Bible will say things like, do not fear that which is fearful. And if you listen to that, it's acknowledging this thing that's happening is fearful. Don't fear it. It's not a contradiction. It's saying don't be controlled by it such that you disobey the second command in the same verse. Be faithful unto death. All the way to the point of death, which is likely going to be accompanied by some fear, is it not? He's saying don't be controlled by the fear as you're looking at this tribulation and therefore turn away from Christ, but instead be faithful, hold fast to Him. Don't let go of Him. Don't abandon Him. Don't, Of course, don't recant and say you're not a Christian, but, but more than that, in your heart, don't set Him aside and begin to try to deal with life with the resources of the world like all the worldlings do. You're an otherworldling. Hold on to Him. Be faithful. And right there is the point of the test. The that you may be tested. Which is in the middle of the verse between these two commands. Satan, sure, Satan wants to tempt us to abandon Christ. And Christ himself says, I'm going to test something here. He's trying to drive a wedge between, yes, but I'm up to something. I'm asking, whose are you? To whom do you belong? In whom do you trust when the chips are down? Me? Okay, let me put the chips down. All of them. Your move. Which, of course, that, that's the point when it's really known, isn't it? 
when the chips are down, when the, the struggle happens, when the point of contention arrives, and you've got to look at it and say, to whom do I belong? Job's friend and Job's wife said, curse God and die. Thank you. Not very helpful. Job knew what was going on, at least this much. Job's reply, though he slays me, he is God. Though he slays me, yet will I trust him. And God said, that's exactly what I knew you were going to say. And I set the whole thing up so that you would say that to him and them and her. Do you see that? He knew that was in Job. He's not testing him to find out for himself. He knows, which is why he brought it, so that Job himself would discover it. And so that they would all discover it. So the spiritual forces of evil would look on and would say, when God changes someone, He changes them and they become His. And so that all the people on earth would look at a person and say, when God changes a person, He gives them another hope which is far superior to mine. If I was there, I'd be in trouble. Job rests in Him. Perfectly? Seamlessly? No, he wrestles, but he rests. He never lets go. God's purpose there. You see it. God's going to take us. He's going to take us all the way, as, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1. Sometimes he'll take us all the way to the point of despairing, even of life itself. Paul says, I'm going to die. I'm on death row. I know it. And that was to purpose. Go read that. 2 Corinthians 1. Go read that. And that was to make us depend not on ourselves, but on Him who raises the dead. God's got a purpose for Paul, a purpose for everybody who's watching Paul. And if I'm honest, I live pretty far away from that. I think I probably, I expect that there would be in the persecution of some intensity like that, I think there probably would be some unique outpouring of grace that the Spirit would give me words to say and would sustain me. But when I dial it back, and I think this is true of you too, but I'll talk about me. When we dial it back to the ordinary tribulation, trial, and hardship, It would be hard to say there's consistency in my and in our lives on do not fear but remain faithful. Because I fret. I stew. Now, you might be deceived on that if you look at me because there might be things that I'm not really worried about. And you might be evaluating me on how I deal with the things I'm not worried about. Check me on the things I worry about. I'll check you on the things you actually worry about. That's where the test is. And when I find something I'm actually worried about, I'm fretting. I'm unsettled. I, I get a little irritable, and my mind starts going, consumed with thinking through how to fix this. What actions I need to take, what person I need to call, what person I need to avoid, sometimes. Right? Right? What, what I should do to massage it and correct it, I, I begin to worry about how to please people or appease people. 
the, the good news is that I think God's doing a work in me on this. That I'm becoming more aware of it. And I'm becoming more convinced that it actually is the case that if he's got it, then I can trust him. I'm becoming more convinced of that. But really, enough about me. What about you? What about you? Because I am certain that God is or will shortly bring into your life tribulation that you may be tested. Asking the question, whose are you? So look, you're a 10 or 12 year old boy, I encourage you, look right now. Because right now, you're laying out the tracks for how you're going to run at the higher levels of greater intensity. How you're responding right now to when sister takes that thing away from me unjustly or person at work slanders me unjustly is laying out some tracks for how you will respond when your spouse gets caught doing something he shouldn't have done. If you find, I'm, I'm in a foreign country, no one will ever know, whose am I? This would make me feel good. This will bring to me some hardship, some trouble, if I avoid the sin. Etc., etc. Where are you faithful and not fearful? We're not, we're not fearing here in this country. We're not fearing the, oftentimes the sword. We're, we're fearing things like, what will sustain my heart? How will I find satisfaction in life? How will I secure myself? What will people think of me if I say or do? Those are the things that we fear. And he says in all of them, be faithful to me. Hold on to me. Don't turn away. That's what he wants. So how? How, do, how does that happen? Well, I have to acknowledge that part of how it happens is simple command. He is our king, and if he commands it as he does, remain faithful to him, then, then we should say, there's the command, and I'm not entitled to not remain faithful if I find it inconvenient. So there's a command there. But... What is marvelous, what is marvelous is that there is far more than just simple command. In this passage, our God consistently aims for our sanctification. In the language of this passage, our God consistently aims for us to not be fearful and be driven into sin by fear, but instead to remain faithful to Him. He consistently aims at that and moves us to it by a marvelous mechanism. Get this. He moves us to it by promise and grace. Promise and grace. Not only, I don't want to eliminate, not only by command, but 
also by promise and grace, laying out in front of your eyes a lure, showing you the beauty, the beauty of holding Christ, the goodness of Christ, the folly of of chasing something else, showing it to you that you would taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Church, realize this. Realize what you already are. I know what I am. I'm persecuted, troubled, afflicted. I'm seated on death row. I'm slandered, attacked, accused, in poverty, impoverished. I know what I am. Verse 9, yes. Yep, I know that. I know your tribulation and poverty, but Christian, you are rich. Do you see that there? You are flat, dead, broke, rich. Do you see it? Back to back. I know your poverty, but you are rich. Materially, sure, I suppose, maybe. You are what you are, but there is another reality, oh, a spiritual reality in which you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You are an heir of the kingdom. In some sense, there's a kingdom of this world, but not. Not. The kingdom that is coming. You are an heir. You are an heir of that kingdom and you will reign with Him forever and ever and ever and ever. He has bestowed on you riches unimaginable, so try to imagine them. You have Christ present with you. And in His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand, pleasures forevermore. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control embodied in this One who has delivered Himself to you and lives inside of you. You are rich. Rich. And so often... We are looking at the wrong economy. We're playing a game of Monopoly. And you got in your hand a fistful of orange 500s and therefore think you're rich. And then you lose them and therefore think you're poor. Neither one is true. It's all fake. It's going to be closed up, put in a box, set back on the shelf, and you're going to go on living the real life. You see, you are rich. And no amount of orange 500s affects that at all. Either way. Neither. You are rich now. And you will be even richer in a fuller sense if you hold fast to Christ all the way through the tribulation, all the way to death, because realize what is coming. End of verse 10. Be faithful all the way to the end and I will give you the crown of life. Which is not a crown like a, like a king's crown of rule. It's a crown like a laurel, like a victor in a military or an athletic setting. I'll give you the victor's crown of life. The reward of life and the second death will never hurt you. 
There is a death coming to you, but there's a much more, a much more significant death out there yet, which has been wiped off the map for you. Second death, the death that is about the judgment of God on our sin, has been removed off of you. And you have a life coming that is glorious. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15 at all? Any bit of that? It was about this again and again and again and again. We right now, we live as perishable, fleshly bodies of dishonor and pain and shame and suffering and hardship. And then we will die. Whether it happens sooner or later is not entirely relevant in the big picture. And then we will die and be raised again imperishable in glory. No longer subject to decay. No longer subject to decline or struggle. But constant growth, particularly constant growth in the understanding of the grace of God. As Ephesians 2.7 says, we talked about this a little bit in our class this morning. Ephesians 2.7 talks about through the coming ages, which are eternal, God is going to be displaying for us the marvelous breadth and depth of His grace. I think of it like an, like an ocean with no bottom. For eternity, we're going to be going down to understand the depth of His grace or across the surface to understand the breadth of His grace and there's no shore and no floor forever. You will be growing in understanding the depth and breadth of the one who is good. How do you think about that? Well, I don't really know other than that it's good. If God says, I'm going to spend eternity unpacking my grace for you, trust that that's a good thing. This is what the one says who himself died and came back to life and lives forever. He has gone before us. He has walked this road and has conquered death and opened up life for us, for you. It's coming. Do not fear the second death. It's not coming to you. Do not fear the first death. It's not final for you. But hold to him. This is our good God who feeds this church's hope with these truths. You are rich and the crown of life is there for you waiting. Go get it. Do not fear, but remain faithful to Christ. Well, I want to finish with the third point by being explicit about something that will be short here, but I want to kind of tie this together so we, we can understand. I'm going to ask it in a question and then answer it. So here's my third point. What are we to learn then as a church? And really it's been implied everywhere in this, but I just want to be kind of explicit about it and kind of tie it up. What are we to learn then as a church? I'm going to put that in a sentence. How to suffer well. How to suffer well. 
There's no rebuke here for this church. He commends the Ephesian church and then rebukes them for something. There's no rebuke here. Christ just wants to encourage and help this church to face the suffering that is coming to them. He wants to encourage them in it. So the the basic thing for the church to hear is how to handle that kind of situation well. And essentially, it's by pulling to the forefront of our minds many things that we already know, but pulling them to the forefront and then living right through them so that I look at life right across, or maybe maybe right through, but right across all these truths. I pull them up to the surface so that I realize a few things like what God is doing in tribulation so that I, I can think through, this is hard, yes, God's up to something. And that would be right away. Because often what happens is we, this is hard, woe is me, we begin to circle and decline. Woe is me, this is hard, this is, I get ripped off, this is unfair, this is hard, I don't like it, it's painful. And we should think, this is hard, God's doing something. In particular, hold fast to him, don't let go. It's an important piece, but how you suffer well, you get some idea about what's going on. And you grab the tendency to, to spiral down, you grab that and you submit that to a Christ who is over it. All of it. Doing something in it, purposeful. And he also wants us to view our adversaries in the right way. These folks here are trouble. And they're going to win in the short term. They're going to put them on death row and execute them. They are adversaries. The human beings are in service of the real spiritual enemy. He wants us to understand that. And he also wants us to understand there's a second death coming. Psalmist writes about how I envied certain people until I considered the end. Realize there is an end. And so view our present circumstances as passing, whether they be blessings or troubles, to view them as passing and not part of the real economy. There's a real economy, and that's not the one that gets closed up in the box and set on the shelf. There's a real economy. And in that economy, Christian, you are rich. To have that right near the surface is a really important element in suffering well. Yes, I'm suffering and I'm rich. Hold on to that. For us to be a church like this, think think about it for a second. It would be a remarkable community of people who actually did count it all joy when they faced trials of any kind. That's in the Bible. If we actually lived like that, that would be a remarkable community. It would be remarkable if we actually did give thanks in all circumstances. That is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, you know. That's in the Bible. To be a people like that, a people who did not live in fear. And 
and did not know a life of struggle and contention, which fear often drives, as we're trying to grab hold of and hold on to the world that's slipping through our fingers. We grasp for the orange 500s. To, to be among a people who didn't do that, and, and we're fine when somebody comes in and raids all their properties. Okay. Paper. It's paper. I'm still rich. And we would not contend and fight, and there would not be quarreling among us because we wouldn't be angry, striving for things. And instead would be a people who were willing to and sought out sacrifice. Because we did not feel the threat to the things on which our lives are built. You know, that's why we don't sacrifice a lot, because I know this is going to threaten that on which I'm banking. If I'm not banking on that, I can give it away. We would be a remarkable community. I want to be a part of a community like that. I want to be a person like that. I want to be a part of a community like that. I can walk through life facing all the suffering that's going to come our way, and it's going to come. Tribulation is part and parcel of life. It's going to come. And we could look at it and say, across these truths, I know what's going on in suffering. I know who's in charge of suffering. I know where my real riches are found. I see it all coming to me one day in glory. And across that, I can look at suffering and and give my life away. He's speaking to the church in Smyrna to help them do that. Rather than have their lives torn out of their hands through their grip, tightly fastened around it, taken away anyway, to to give it away, to suffer well. Can we be a people like that? That's my prayer. That's what I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to ask God to make us a people more like that, particularly to drive home to us, you are rich and there is a life coming. Let me pray towards that. Pray with me. Father, I'm thankful for this word that you spoke to your church and that you speak today to your church. So help us. In this world, we will have tribulation. It is necessary to enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. You've said that to us in the Bible, Paul and Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would help your people to face tribulation, whether it be the attack of classmates who make fun of their clothes or the attack of enemies who imprison relatives and kill them. Everything in between. Help us to be a people, Lord, who face tribulation and suffer through it well because You have planted so deeply in us and grown up, interwoven so thoroughly through us a conviction that we are rich in You that we have been saved by You and will be delivered into glory by You and so we can trust You who reigns over it all. 
bring that conviction home and make it real for us, particularly, Lord, for any of us here right now who are particularly hard-pressed and suffering in this moment. Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious, a kind and merciful God. That you do not abandon us and leave us to suffer in the world as orphans. But you father us all the way through. You shepherd us. Bless your name for that. Shepherd this your people, I pray. And I pray this in the name of the good shepherd, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.